Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. Happy to be back with you today. How are you doing this evening, Ben? I'm good. Excited to talk about the topic tonight. Yeah. Um, so tonight we're going to talk about the end times and um, the second coming of Christ, which is you know a fundamental belief of pretty much all Christians around the world. Um, the Bible explicitly talks about the return of Jesus and how that will take place and when that will take place. And of course, it raises all sorts of uh, interesting questions. And it's very much applicable because so much of policy and politics in the world um, center around this idea that Jesus is going to return and in some way or another take the faithful um, to uh, heaven and uh, to offer some sort of punishment or tribulation to uh, those that are... uh, unfaithful and left on earth. And um, how that will all take place is a major dividing issue among the church. The whole church has um, lots of different denominations uh, which have varying views of the end times. Ben, I saw an article, a Pew Research poll about um, Americans um, and what their view of the end times were. Um, I guess I really wasn't surprised that... um, this many Americans believe this in in one shape or another. Like overall, four in 10 U.S. adults believe that humanity is living in the end times, which means that uh, the end of the world is coming very, very soon, according to about 40% of all Americans. Among Christians, that's 47%, but among Protestant Christians, it's 55%. Again, I can't say I'm really surprised. I grew up in a Christian church, and I went to a private Christian um, elementary and high school. This was this was prevalent. I mean, everyone basically there, in my experience, believed that we were in the end times. And yeah, I think that is a extremely common belief. Um, I you know, in my forty um, some years on this earth, I've seen enough people um, that have sort of made predictive um, claims about the return of Christ, uh, come and go, or um, apocalyptic prophets that were predicting the end of the world and um, ended up not uh, being correct. I also think there's a fascination with um, looking at texts that allege to show the future and are sort of mysterious and um, trying to puzzle out what you think those texts are referring to. 
So I can see why there's so much fascination around it. And I think that uh, we'll talk about it. The texts themselves give reasons to believe that the end times are coming soon in order to make sense of those texts like that. That's a belief that would naturally come. Yeah. The, to me, um, what sticks out about this is that, yeah, if you believe that um, the world is coming to an end, what are the implications of that and how you live your life, how you vote and what policies you're interested in? Are you really interested in, let's say, climate change policy that, you know, aims to uh, curb carbon dioxide output, um, you know, over the next few decades when you really feel like, well, in the next in my lifetime, in the next few decades, Jesus is going to come and that this isn't going to matter anyway. And um, it's definitely a pessimistic view of the future as far as like planet Earth is, is concerned. Also, like we talked about a few episodes ago about rapture anxiety. We read an article about how like the, growing up under, with this umbrella of fear that at any moment Jesus was, was going to swoop in and rapture up. And if you were happened to be, you know, in the midst of a sin or you hadn't yet uh, asked for forgiveness before this happened, well, you might just be left behind and how that People grew up, and I knew a lot of them, and so did you, Ben, who uh, were living under um, this constant threat and this constant fear. And there was a lot of this article pointed out how there was a lot of really long-term negative impacts on, uh, on their mental functioning. Yeah, I think that living through an apocalypse or believing that you're on the edge of an apocalypse uh, is very psychologically taxing for people. Um, and I think that uh, this sort of notion of the impermanence of the world or that the world is uh, destined for destruction, um, this sort of like fatalistic movement towards uh, an end that is like the annihilation of uh, the majority of humanity and like a renewal of the earth or maybe even a whole destruction of the earth um, definitely does uh, lead to a disengagement with um, things that are happening in the material world. You're sort of, you keep everything at a distance knowing that it's like there's an impermanence to it or it's not the thing that really matters. And I think that that has really um, negative implications um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I think maybe it's a little far afield, but I think this recent trend we see uh, on a lot of these like reality shows of preppers and people that are like you know building nuclear fallout shelters so they can uh, they can survive um, whatever like climate catastrophe or um, end time catastrophe um, humanity faces. I think it's emblematic of um, this type of mentality. I wish that there was a more a progressive, like optimistic approach to say, no, like we are going to, humanity will be here and we need to um, take care of the planet, the one planet that we have and preserve its resources and learn to live uh, with each other in peace. But this uh, article, this um, Pew Research poll, it doesn't really give any data about how this belief has changed over time. I think that would have been very interesting to see if this is getting like more or less prevalent. Like I said, growing up, it seemed pretty prevalent to me, but I was in a Christian community. And um, I'm also interested to see, this is again, focusing on the United States. I would be interested to see the rest of the world and um, what their views are. Yeah, both of those pieces of data would also interest me. I think that it's a purely... Um, 
it's just an experiential uh, evidence. But I mean, all you would really have to do is ask someone, like, do you think that we're living in the end times? Or, man, don't you think everything that's happening is a sign that the end of the world is near? And almost every evangelical Christian I've ever known will will say, yeah, I do. You know, we're seeing all this stuff. Everything seems like there's just more earthquakes and there's more et cetera, et cetera. Um, or the global powers are uniting and I can see the Antichrist rising. I mean, the, the whole like naming of the Antichrist has been such a, it's almost a cottage industry unto itself. One of the real huge problems, the biggest problem with all of this is, um, on one hand, I think it's pretty bad scholarship, and hopefully we'll show that as we have our discussion. Um, it doesn't really interpret the biblical texts in the correct way. And I think the second problem is that every person that's ever predicted the end of the world has been wrong. So there's a literal 100% incorrect rate. Um, it just seems like the odds are not in your favor. Yeah. I mean, um, Jesus says that he will be returning soon. He actually uses the word soon. And um, um, Jesus lived about 2,000 years ago. So then, you know, so people are saying, well, it has to happen that, you know, in my lifetime then, because it's already been 2,000 years. I think that goes into the equation also. Uh, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about how um, Jesus used the word soon and and um, what that meant to the uh, original audience of the Bible. And um, But why don't we dive right in, Ben? So the, um, the Gospels uh, have Jesus... Um, talking about the end times. So the the most famous passage where um, Jesus basically prophesies the second coming comes from a section called the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus is talking on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. And this is shortly before his um, arrest and the crucifixion. And um, this is found in Matthew 24. Now it's long, it's, it's like 50 verses, so I'm not going to... Um, read the entire thing. I'm just going to kind of give some of the highlights. Um, and th- this is in Matthew, but it's also in a parallel of this other synoptic gospels of Luke and Mark. So before Jesus gets to the Mount of Olives, he's with his disciples by the temple. And he says, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And, th- and he's talking about the temple. And um, that was that would have been a a radical prediction. Although most textual scholars think that this was written um, after A.D. seventy, so after the temple had already been torn down. And what what Matthew, Mark, and Luke here are doing are going back and um, having Jesus predict this as a uh, clue to the start of the beginning of the end. And then as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Um, So most, again, most scholars don't believe that Jesus actually said these words. These are um, follow, this is written after um, Jesus had already been gone and his followers are desperate for him to return. And these prophecies are written and they're put in on the lips of Jesus. But, uh, so I, so, but as the story goes, um, Jesus goes on to explain all the things that will happen before the end times come. And it starts out 
I'll just take a couple clips here. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Um, they will hand you over to tribulation and kill you. And there was, there was um, you know, in the early church, tribulation against Christians by Rome. So this all makes sense. And he goes on to talk about that. And then he says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So now we've moved into like supernatural signs that we will see. Um, and the stars will fall from the sky. And, and again, to say this is just metaphorical language, well, they didn't understand the cosmos the way we understand the cosmos. And to them, the, the stars falling from the sky was an actual possibility. Although Ben can elaborate on this, but a lot of this language is also taken from Old Testament passages. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. I won't go into the, again, the uh, flat earth cosmology here, but uh, it's, it's certainly there. And if you move on, and this is, this is one of the most important parts. This is a prediction as to when this will happen. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And then uh, a few verses later, at that time, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So again, you know, we were talking a little bit about the rapture and the rapture anxiety. Well, this is part of where it comes from, because it basically says, hey, you might be there with one of your friends and he might be taken and you might be left behind. Um so be it's be on alert and be sinless and be faithful because this could happen at any point. That's a very brief overview of the Olivet discourse, um, and but there's other passages earlier in Matthew, Matthew 16. Jesus is also talking about the second coming, um, and he says, "Truly, I, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man." coming in his kingdom. So again, it's talking about the second coming and saying, hey, some of you, some of my disciples right here are still going to be alive on this earth when this happens. And what we see is in the early church, the earliest writings we have, while some of the actual followers followers of Jesus were alive and were still alive, they absolutely believed and um, put, put faith in the fact that the second coming was going to happen at any time. And um, we see this, especially in the letters of Paul, which um, we're going to talk about a little bit later. And um, so that that's like the specific, like in, like put words, put into the mouth of Jesus that we find in the Gospels. Um, and there's more, there's, there's a passage in John, which we'll talk about later. But um, the next big um, end times discussion comes from Revelation, and I thought maybe Ben could give us just a little bit overview of like uh, how does Revelation distinguish itself from the Gospels in its presentation? Yeah, so it's interesting because um, Revelation is in a different, I would say, a different family. Um, it's at least traditionally lumped in with the Johannian community. 
Um, it's a it's by a um, like an apocalyptic figure, um, John of Patmos, who um, wrote near the end of the first century. And um, he had visions and uh, put those visions down. Um, and those visions have basically created endless speculation about what John was talking about. Um, I don't think it's super important, um, and it would take a lot longer than the time that we have to get into everything that um, John talks about in Revelation. Um, the short version is, um, I would say, a huge majority of it is an allegory um, and is anti-Roman. Um, so a lot of the figures that uh, have been interpreted throughout uh, Christian history um, and a lot of in modern times um, to be sort of the figures of the apocalypse are um, about specific Roman figures in John's day. Um, but I thought it would be interesting just to read Revelation 1.1 1, 1, um, because I think it gives you a clue into when John uh, of Patmos thought that um, all these things would take place. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant what must soon take place. So, even in Revelation, in the different family and different tradition, the Johannian tradition, which is a later tradition, um, near the end of the first century, John is still um, operating under the assumption that the end of days is coming soon. It's something that is happening um, in the immediate future. Yeah, what I find interesting about Revelation is you have um, a lot of anger against Rome that you're not really seeing uh, in the same way in the Gospels. Um, and you're finding like so much of the end times discussion in Revelation is really about judgment coming upon like the evil Rome. And it kind of makes sense. The Jews were through the diaspora were completely displaced out of their homeland of Israel. And, um, you know, Rome in AD 70 came in and like, like we said before, destroyed the temple. And, um, so you, you kind of have it, like Ben said, like a different flavor of, um, of what's going on here. But, um, overall you still have this expectation, this expectation that, Hey, Jesus was here not that long ago. So it would have been decades ago. And, um, and the last generation of people that were alive when Jesus was alive is now dying off. And what we find is we find kind of a, a change in tone. So in, um, in the earliest writings we have, which are from Paul uh, in the New Testament, um, you see this eminent expectation. The Apostle Paul, absolutely, I think, I think Ben, most scholars would agree with me that um, the Apostle Paul absolutely expected the return of Jesus to happen uh, any day and in his lifetime. We've talked about it a lot on this show in previous episodes, but I mean, his entire theology, I mean, we, we in the family episode we talk about, he's not even interested in you getting married or giving your daughters away in marriage because Jesus is going to be coming any day. Just stay faithful. Yeah, so I, I read a little bit of um, <clears throat> E.P. Sanders, who's a, a really uh, famous uh, scholar of Paul who just passed away maybe a month ago. Um, and uh, one of the things that he traced is throughout uh, Paul's letters 
the belief, the return of Christ in Paul's lifetime never left Paul. Um, and he had moments of doubt, and there were moments in the later Paulian letters where he was obviously struggling, um, facing possible uh, death, um, but still was clinging to the hope that he would see Christ return in his lifetime. And I think before we look at those, um, two quick comments. So one, I think that it's super important when you're thinking about Revelation, and I think it's uh, important talking about Matthew, um, how heavily they borrow from um, the the Jewish apocalyptic literature, like Daniel, for example, um, that are like the latest books written in the Old Testament and incorporate a lot of the same imagery uh, and mix some of the same metaphors. And I also think it's an interesting fact that I learned today. Um, most of the reason that we have a lot of that apocalyptic Jewish literature is because it was co-opted by Christianity and continued to be copied and preserved by Christian scribes. Um, but that also leads us to issues in how they transcribed it and whether they were transcribing it in a way that was faithful to the original Jewish intent or co-opted for some sort of uh, Christian interpolation. Now, we know, for example, um, we talked about it in our Christmas episodes, that Matthew would often use the uh, Hebrew Bible in ways that were, to put it, uh, politely disingenuous to the original meaning of the text. So um, it creates an issue for the preservation of the original text and how those apocalyptic uh, texts were being used. And it's also interesting because when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, the variants, a lot of them were in the apocalyptic texts. So it shows that there may have been changes created by the Christian communities. I just thought that was an interesting point to kind of dovetail on the, um, the last part of the last discussion. But I think that it's so central to understanding Paul's letters, to know that his focus is completely on the mission at hand, uh, the eminent return of Christ uh, at any moment that was going to happen in his lifetime. Part of the major thrust in the Corinthian letters is to reassure believers that the ones that have died off already will still be part of the meeting up of the Son of Man when he returns uh, in power and that there will be a resurrection of the dead. The first letter that we have from Paul, 1 Thessalonians, is probably the most explicit in laying out Paul's theology of uh, Christ's uh, soon return. What comes to mind for me is how much of the New Testament is not written for us, not written for people living 2,000 years later. Um, there's almost nothing in the New Testament, if anything. I don't see a lot that's talking about, you know, society going forward for centuries and millennia after these texts are written and um, how we should organize our life. And I think this is why Christians run into so many problems and part of the reason why they have so many divisions, because they the New Testament is simply not even addressing this type of thing. It's not addressing families going forward. Um, I think the closest you can get to uh, a talking about like an ongoing kind of perpetual Christianity off into the future probably comes from the pastoral epistles of Paul, where it does lay out guidelines for the church as far as 
bishops and deacons and the role of women, et cetera, et cetera. And it really has like kind of a, a higher organization. And as we've talked about before, Paul didn't write those. Those are forgeries in the name of Paul. Like virtually all scholars agree on this. Um, it, we're not going to go into all the reasons why, but uh, we will do definitely do more on that in future episodes. But I think it's an important point to say that the Bible, especially the New Testament, is not talking to modern people in any way. Like people love to go through and dissect Revelation and look for clues about the end times. Well, Revelation is talking about Rome. It's talking about Nero. It's talking about events that happened um, two millennia ago. And it was like the end of the world to them. I mean, Rome was this uh, overpowering empire that did conquer Israel. And it, it did seem like the end of the world. It totally makes sense that this type of writing um, came out of that era. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's impossible to underestimate the impact that the destruction of the temple um, and like the sacking of Jerusalem that happened um, in 70 AD had on um, Judaism and early Christianity, um, shattering sort of like central worldview. Um, and again, the idea that that was predicted by Jesus before the fact, in the text he's making, um, at least in, in some of the, the gospel accounts, he's making an analogy to the temple to himself being raised. Um, so there, it's a double prediction that I'm skeptical of either prediction was ever made. Um, but it shows the trauma that both of those events had for the gospel writer and the importance that they have Jesus predicting those events because they were the analogy is apt. The destruction of the temple was the same thing as the destruction of their Messiah. It's a world-shattering, earth-shattering event. Um, and so it would have seemed like the end of the world. It was the end of the world in some sense. I mean, apocalypse, I think, in, a, in um, its actual meaning is a revealing also. So it's not only just the end of the world. It's a, it's a total reorientation of uh, the way you see the world. It's also interesting that this sort of apocalyptic Jewish literature, I think, is really contemporary. The The Jewish literature is contemporary with the sort of messianic fervor, and Christianity is part of that messianic fervor and also produced, like, apocalyptic literature, because I think, honestly, those things go together. Um, I had another comment, just to jump back earlier, um, to talk about Jesus, and, you know, we know that Jesus probably didn't say these words because they're written um, by his followers years and years after his death. Um, but we can be pretty sure, and critics, uh, historical critics, for the most part, I think it's it's basically the consensus of the best scholars that Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet. So that was really central to what his mission was in of the historical Jesus. Um, and I think because we know that these uh, verses go back to Mark, we know that they go back to the earliest accounts that we have of Jesus's sayings. And also we know that they're in the earliest writings of Paul. So we know this is a very, very early Christian notion. Um, and uh, like John said, the pastoral epistles are a reaction to the uh, delay of this happening um, and Christianity having to uh, textualize um, 
the reasons for this delay. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about some of the other ways it answered um, this time period, too. Yeah, Ben, I've heard it said by um, some scholars that the way you analyze prophetic literature is the way you try to figure out the dating of it is like you look at the predictions they got right and the predictions they got wrong. So here, um, the prediction that was wrong from Jesus is that like the second coming would happen during the lifetime of his followers. But the prediction that he got right was that the temple would be destroyed and not one stone would be left upon another. And um, that actually happened. The temple was destroyed in AD 70. So a lot of scholars say, okay, well, this was probably written right around that time. And um, that actually makes a lot of sense based on uh, the manuscript tradition that we have. But I want to come back to what do modern Christians do with some of these verses? Uh, I haven't really heard a good answer. Jesus explicitly is talking about supernatural events. He's talking about the Son of Man descending from heaven, earthquakes, etc., etc., at the second coming. And he said, this will happen while some of you are still breathing. And the explanations, um, you know, to get around that, I, I've, I've heard a lot and I've read a lot, and they're not very compelling. Because what, you're, what you really have to do is you have to make, like, the words of the Bible completely meaningless. Because this, this is a very clear prediction. It was such a clear prediction that the actual followers, you know, the actual first Christians were completely relying on this. We see this in the letters of Paul. And I want to point out a couple verses um, in, uh, in John and in Second Peter. So, in, uh, let's start with Second Peter. Second Peter 3, 7 through 10. Um, he talks about how the heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. So this is the second coming. And then in um, 2 Peter 3, verse 8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So 2 Peter is a forged um, epistle in the name of Peter. It was not written by Peter. It was written after his death. So this is written in a time period where the original followers of Jesus have died. And people are starting to, it sounds to me from reading this, that there's people saying, hey, what's going on? Like Jesus was supposed to come. And this is kind of an apology for that and saying like, oh no, it's just, it's not slow as you would count slowness. It's just that he doesn't wish anyone to perish and uh, wants all people to come to repentance. But again, it's still, a, it's still contradictory to what Jesus explicitly says in the Gospels, that this will happen um, while some of them sitting there were still alive. And then this comes uh, further into, into uh, focus in the Gospel of John, John 21, 21 through 23. It says, So Peter, upon seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this account went out among the brothers, that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So to me, this is is kind of a funny verse, because you clearly had uh, believers, early Christians, who thought that this beloved disciple 
would be alive until the second coming, and they were putting faith in that. And apparently the beloved disciple had died. And now you have this kind of funny verse that says, no, I didn't say, I didn't say that um, he would be alive until I came. I said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Um, which I think is, it shows you again that there was clearly this expectation and now it's kind of an apology because that expectation didn't come true. And then again, to back that up, we have those earlier verses in Matthew that were written um, before John that also talks about how the second coming will happen in the lifetime of the believers. So I think as you, like I said before, as you go on through history and as you get further away from the historical Jesus, you find less and less of it's going to be happening any day and more and more of of a kind of an apology for those original verses. I think by the end they're sort of like we're in it for the long haul. Like this is clearly not like it may happen in our lifetime, it may not, but it's not happening with the immediacy that the early texts talk about. Yeah, and in the Second Peter passage, if if a day is like a thousand years, again, then it means all of like the timeline, any kind of timeline that's ever given before that verse is totally meaningless. If a day is like a thousand years, then okay, so you know anything about like happening in the lifetime of the disciples or this generation will not pass away, none of that really means anything because now we're talking about if a day is like a thousand years, this like the second coming could be just like you know a million years from now. Yeah, it's weird. It's uh, I think it's quoting Psalms, and I didn't look at the original context, but I'm almost certain like the context is not using it in the same way that they're using it in Second Peter to mean that, oh well, it's this elongated time that for God is, you know, you're like in dog years and God is in real years, or you know what I mean? Like I don't think that that's. It's probably just like God is so expansive that a day is like a thousand years to him or something. Um, to show his majesty. But like I said, that's just a speculation on the context in its original. Um, it's totally an apology for how long it's taking. I mean, I think that uh, there's no real ambiguity. Part of the way we know which of these books are early or late is because of the way that they treat this return of Christ. Um, because the ones that are earliest treat it with the most uh, immediacy, um, and the most like urgency, and the later ones are starting to make um, claims that would, like you said, mitigate these earlier verses. I think this is one of like the the biggest uh, check marks against Christianity. I think that this failed prediction of the end times is happening during the life of his disciples. You have it on the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. It's black and white. Um, and we know that like from the Bible itself, that the, this is exactly what the, the first followers of Jesus took those words to mean. Um, it's what the words mean and, and it's said in multiple ways. So for instance, when it talks about this generation, not what will not pass away, um, that seems on its face to mean the current generation, like they won't, the people that are alive at that time, um, it won't pass away before these things happen. And there's been a lot of modern apologists who have said, well, that generation could mean this or could mean that. And, you know, we could go on and talk about each of those. Um, they'll, some of them will say, no, that generation is talking about the Jews in general. 
which I think is nonsensical because if you say that like the Jews will not pass away, well, they were Jews at the time and they, of course, they thought that the Jews would always be there because they were God's chosen people. So it would make, it would make that totally nonsensical. But again, all of it's negated, I think, by the Matthew 16 and it has parallel, it has parallels in Mark also that says some of you standing here will not taste death and you really can't get around that. Yeah, even when Paul um, in First Thessalonians, where he has his famous passage, it's actually interesting because he actually quotes the passage as if it's a, a saying of Jesus. Um, he says, for this is what we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not proceed those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. So Paul doesn't attribute it directly to Jesus, but he uses that uh, preface Usually when he's um, quoting scripture, um, we don't really think that Paul had very much access to the words of Jesus, if any at all, um, and doesn't seem to know a lot about, about, about Jesus. So E.P. Sanders speculates that Paul took a scripture and modified it in order to fit the purpose that he had in order to edify the uh, church in Thessalonica. Um, where believers were passing away. Um, so it's an interesting theory, um, but it's also interesting that Paul quotes that belief that Christ was coming back in their lifetime um, and that those that had died would meet up with those who were still alive as almost a saying of Jesus. Yeah, and there's verses that talk about how um, the brethren will be caught up in the air together, which is where this, the concept of the rapture comes from. Uh, we started off talking about how many people still believe in um, the end times. They think this is going to happen within their lifetime, like many, many people. So, um, you know, it's it has a lot of implications on um, on like the entire geopolitical uh, place that we are in. I think of Zionism comes to mind where. In America, in America, Christian Zionists believe that Jesus will return, but he will return to Israel and um, the temple has to be rebuilt and there's there's actually like human preparation that has to be done in Israel before this happens, which is a huge reason that America supports Israel to the level that we do. And then Jews in Israel who, they don't believe in Jesus, they don't think that Jesus is the Messiah, yet... Um, for there is a political alliance because um, it totally um, suits their political uh, goals um, to have like a strong alliance with the United States. So there's like the very interesting dynamic that stems from these ancient verses. Yeah, this is kind of where the theoretical problem becomes like a real actual problem. Um because some of this stuff has spawned like super dangerous conspiracy theories um, or conspiratorial thinking has motivated uh, apocalyptic cultic beliefs that uh, are dangerous. And, um, you know, like I sort of joked about the uh, Antichrist naming 
I can remember my Facebook page being flooded when Obama was elected president that he was the Antichrist because he was a good speaker and he was going to lead everyone astray and the one world government. And, you know, it's sort of humorous and stupid in a way, but it's also really, really dangerous. And the nexus between sort of right wing uh, white supremacy uh Zionism in the United States, which like is a weird combination already, um, and uh, right-wing uh, white supremacist Zionism in Israel, it has created like human rights abuses in uh, the occupied territories, and also a political alliance that's extremely dangerous and has like global political implications. The implications are pretty scary because, like I said, they're voting for things and they're advocating for certain policies, and um, and you know we can talk about all like the cult leaders I, I mentioned in a previous episode about Harold Camping who predicted. The end of the world would come in 1994 because he read the Bible and found a secret code. And um, there's a whole story behind that. And there's there's lots of other, um, you know, through the years, lots of other cult leaders that have predicted this stuff. But it's really no different. The 40% of America right now, uh, they believe this stuff. Whether they know when it's going to happen or not, they believe that it's going to happen in their lifetime. I'm sure if Katie was here, she would say, I am concerned about the the end times but not not from jesus returning but from us actually destroying the earth like with uh problems like climate change and those are the things that are grounded in science that we really should be concerned about yeah it's a huge problem and i think that um like you said the beliefs go from relatively innocent to a shootout on ruby ridge you know like uh with the government so i was watching i think i mentioned it before i was watching elaine pagels and she was talking about her book on revelation and one of the things that she said was there was a sort of a movement from when matthew's gospel was written um and the idea of the sheep and the goats and the people that were the followers of jesus uh, were the ones who showed compassion to those who were in need, and the ones who were cold-hearted or didn't show compassion were the ones who weren't really the followers of Jesus. By revelation, it's like uh, John of Patmos is just spewing vitriol at anyone that he doesn't like. So the the hatred, and again, it's a metaphor for Rome, so I think we should take it that way, but there's a lot of like sort of indiscriminate um, vitriol poured out on like uh, people for various quote-unquote sins or uh, misdeeds or whatever um, that is in sharp contrast to the idea of the sheep and the goats and someone showing compassion um, being the followers of Jesus. So it's just interesting. Um, I think these sort of like overly apocalyptic narratives like are very easy to dehumanize people with. I think that they may have overlapping ties with like anti-Semitic beliefs that were in the Christian community at that time as well. I mean, I just think there's a lot of problematic aspects to this um, apocalypticism and the idea that the world is destined for destruction and its inhabitants are either damned or saved um, causes us to not care for the earth and not care for the people who live in it. Yeah, I think that you have an ancient text that, uh, especially if you're talking about Revelation, that just says a lot of really cryptic, really bizarre, lots of imagery. 
and you just throw it out to the world, you say, all this is true, all of this is the word of God, and you leave it up to people to interpret it, and you're going to come up with cults. You're going to, and if in this particular moment we don't have any extremist cult or extremist movement that's taking these texts and interpreting it in a way that's harmful, um, that doesn't mean that, a, that one is not going to arise. And I think a better thing to be teaching children is critical thinking. Instead of instead of teaching them that oh we can we can derive some kind of um, prediction of the future from reading Revelation or from uh, reading the Gospels and finding out like what's going to happen when Jesus returns, um, I think just teaching critical thinking is a much better solution and it would have would would uh, render much better results. Yeah, I a hundred percent agree um, with the. Uh parenthetical note of caution that I actually think there may be groups that are operating right now um, using these texts as uh, as uh, fodder for their anti-government or their hateful beliefs um, because I don't think we have a real um, idea of oh, those type of groups that are operating. Oh, no, there absolutely are. My point is to say, even if there's not, like, yeah. like my, my point is there like... Will be. Yeah, my point is like if you can point to it, well, most Christians, most evangelical Christians are peace loving and they're not causing and I think for the large part that's true. But then we're just waiting for like the next radical movement um to take shape and I think that like if you if you basically leave like a a faith-based approach or a devotional approach to taking these ancient texts and deriving um, some kind of like ultimate truth from them, like that's bound to happen. It always has happened and it always will happen. And I think a better solution would be more of an enlightenment approach, more of a critical thinking approach that teaches people, you know, exactly what we're trying to do on this show, take the text. And I'm not encouraging people not to read the Bible. I mean, obviously we are um, fans of reading the Bible and dissecting it and analyzing it, but to analyze it in context and analyzing it using the best research and the best uh, scholarship around to try to get to the bottom of why were these things written, who were they written to, and what were they actually saying. And I think that we may not be, we don't claim to be the greatest Bible scholars in the world, um, but I'll go toe-to-toe with anyone predicting the end of the world because those people are always wrong. Uh, anyone predicting that Jesus is going to come back and that they know the day, they literally have a 100% fail rate. So I'm not you know, if those are the people you're listening to, instead of trying to understand the Bible from a historical context, I think you're on a fool's errand anyway. Um, I also just think that it is a really thin line between someone starting to take the passage in Matthew literally and stockpiling for when the tribulation begins so they can run to the hills and um, not have a pregnant woman, uh, not be on the roof when it happens, um, be ready even on the Sabbath. Um, It's a really thin line from that preparation where I have known Christians that are preppers and are ready for the tribulation to happen, and there was a whole movement around it. Um, to some sort of a global catastrophic event like COVID happening that requires some sort of a state intervention for our safety um, and for humanity to be safe. And those people reacting in a way that creates a massive uh, and dangerous uh, event uh, because they think it's fulfilling some sort of a global world prophecy. 
Yeah, I um, think that's a really good point because I think at some point you actually see policy that's like destructive policy and you almost get the feeling that it's, well, this will bring on the end times, which is something that they want to happen. So, you know, like the Bible literally predicts that the earth will end in like a ball of fire. And you know what? That's kind of like what uh, like the worst doomsday climate change um, scientists will talk about also. And what do you know? It's it's those Christians that like always vote against any sort of climate intervention or any policy that will help curb climate change. Well, it's funny because Hal Lindsey... Uh, wrote the late great planet Earth. I think it's 1988 that he wrote it. Maybe it's a little bit later or a little bit earlier. Not really that important. Um, and his prediction was that uh, thermal global uh, thermal nuclear war on a global scale would destroy the Earth, thus fulfilling the prophecy: the world will be destroyed by fire. Um, and of course, he interpreted that in light of the global political situation of the time, uh, the Cold War and the nuclear arsenals that were the threat. Um, it's fascinating because some of his disciples post the fall of the uh, Berlin Wall and the fall of communism have actually gone so far as to formulate a conspiracy theory where communism is lying in wait um, to sort of like reappear at the precise moment when it can rise with the Antichrist. It's like, again, this just leads to this crazy thinking um, because you feel like you're seeing the secret workings behind the scenes. And that kind of conspiratorial thinking is like behind every horrific event in history. At least it's part of every horrific event in history. Yeah, and not to belabor this, but like on that exact point, I think what those people are doing are basically the same thing that the gospel writers and the writer of Revelation was doing, where you see these political events happening all around you, these world events that seem world-ending. It, it seemed like the end of the world when Israel, um, when the Jews were um, scattered around. And I'm sure to the writer of uh, Revelation, um, what Rome was doing seemed like the end of the world, and hence all these apocalyptic writings came out of that. And I think that's exactly what people do when they see big world events happening now. They say, this is a sign. That this is, this is going to be the end. Yeah, so I totally agree. I also think that we're facing a moment in our history now where a lot of the problems that we face are going to require really big interventions on either the state level or even like the multi-state level, like the international level. Um, like I don't think climate change can be solved um, on a local level. Um, it's going to take some sort of a big intervention. Um, and when you have people that have in internal to their theology this idea that a big government is dangerous or is fulfilling an evil purpose, I just think that even if the government's doing really benevolent things, it's going to lead to those people being extremely skeptical. And I think we saw that some in COVID. Um, and I think we see that with Every debate that happens where there's some sort of a government solution, these people's theology makes them think that that's somehow like a fulfillment of um, empowering the Antichrist or the UN is secretly the vehicle of the Antichrist. Um, and I just think that facing the problems that we're facing today that are going to require big interventions 
Um, these beliefs really need to be re-examined. And I think it's unfortunate that we have this sort of nexus of even the the rise and prominence of evangelical Christianity and also these problems that are going to require a uh, big state intervention. Bible says what? So Ben, to start this segment of Bible says what, I wanted to give a little background. I went to church again recently because a friend of mine, um, their child was being baptized. So um, we went to the church that we had been going for many years before. I hadn't been there in a long time. And it was nice to see some old faces and friends. And um, during the sermon, the pastor uh, was preaching on Philippians. And he was dealing with Philippians 1, and we read verses 20 through 24, and I'll read it. Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. This is the Apostle Paul talking. Whether by life or death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sakes." So as I was, I've read that verse before, but this time as he was going through it, the, as the pastor was preaching, I thought to myself, you know, Paul is, is writing this in prison. He's suffering and he's obviously, um, uh, you know, wishing that he was free. Is Paul possibly contemplating suicide here? Uh, because he's talking about whether he will live or die. And then he specifically says, I do not know which to choose. So he, it seemed to me like, well, if you're choosing to, to live or die, you might be like choosing to die, which is a contemplation of suicide. So after the service, um, a good friend of mine, uh, I brought it to his attention, and um, he's a very strong evangelical Christian, and um, he thought it was interesting. He, he said that, you know, that would kind of make sense because he was in prison, and he said, why don't you go and ask the pastor about it? Um, so I did, and I... Uh, I brought it to the pastor's attention, who immediately said, "No way! Like that, that would be wrong because um, suicide is a, is a huge sin." And uh, no, this is not what Paul is doing there. And I I pointed out the fact that, well, like, what does it mean when he says, um, "If I will choose, you know, I do not know if I, cho- I will choose life or death." And um, he did not have a good answer. I can't tell you exactly what he said, but uh, he didn't really give me that much at all. He, As soon as he saw where I was going, I think he kind of wanted to move on and talk to somebody else, um, which was very typical of my experience in church. But um, I went back home and then researched it a little bit. And as it turns out, I'm not the first person to to make that connection. Yeah, I'll try not to give away too many spoilers because I think I read the same blurb that you did um i think it's super fascinating i mean i think the key to the passage is really the word choose like you said like because what else could he be talking about if he's not saying i mean he's offering the choice of staying or going like staying in the flesh or departing and he's saying that he can choose so um i don't know what other interpretation it is and even in the next verses um 
he's like weighing his options. Like you see him oscillating between the two options. Well, to depart is to be with the Lord. That would definitely be better. Um, but to stay, I don't know what the exact wording is, but to stay like I can finish my mission and continue. So I actually was talking to someone, I posted on Reddit about this, and I'll share the one conversation that I had. The gist of what their comment was, um, was that like this was kind of troubling. Um, it's not good advice to tell someone um, that you, know, uh, you could choose suicide or that it's better to depart because uh, you'll be with the Lord. I'm sort of of two minds. So I think first... Let's acknowledge the fact that that's what Paul's saying in this passage. Like, we know that, like John said, he's in prison at this time. This may be one of the last letters he wrote because we have two prison letters and we have Romans and we don't really know where to place them chronologically. It's definitely a letter from Paul. We don't know if it chronologically, if it's the last letter that he wrote right. or if it's if it's earlier than Romans and... So if we operate under the assumption that Paul was thinking about suicide and didn't kill himself, I think that it's actually helpful to acknowledge that Paul is an actual person that has actual human emotions. He's not some saintly person that exists in a glass case that people can't identify with. Um, He's literally St. Paul. Ben. Yeah. I mean, but you can have <laughs> mental illness. You can struggle with anxiety and depression. You can even think about the... Uh, you can even be overwhelmed to the point where you're considering taking your own life. And I don't think you have to feel like you're a person that can't be uh, part of the Christian community because St. Paul also felt that same way, overwhelmed by life and, and was like at the very least contemplating his own mortality. Yeah, um, I, I, Ben, I completely agree with you. I think that it's a big missed opportunity for someone like that the pastor that I talked to this is a this would be a great um, point for a pastor in a sermon to talk about how Paul is a human being and dealing with the same type of uh, emotions and problems that we all deal with and not putting him on this like saintly pedestal that makes him almost like a Christ figure and um, and I think this was this was really a, like a missed opportunity for the church to like knee jerk reaction reject this. Yeah, I think it's I, I mean, we just got done talking about earlier how these texts don't have a lot to say to us that actually would matter to our modern ears or that actually speak to issues. This text actually speaks to something that people deal with, right. like now, like every day. People in churches. I mean, I know a guy who uh, was a member of a church that I went to that jumped in front of the Long Island Railroad and killed himself. And it's not like it's an aberration for Christians to feel depression or... I, I don't know what the... the So it, just in doing a little bit of research of this, I don't know if this is one of the things you're going to talk about, John, but the early church didn't necessarily believe that suicide was a mortal sin or that would commit you to hell. The earliest uh, notion of that being true is Augustine. So that's, you know, in the, the, the hundreds of years after Jesus. Yeah, I have a quote from Bart Ehrman about this um, from his blog. It, it just, he basically um, lays out uh, information from a book called A Noble Death, Suicide and Martyrdom Among Christian and Jews in Antiquity by Harper, San Francisco, 1992. Um, 
Arthur Droge and James Tabor argue that the modern notion that suicide is a sin stems not from the Bible, but from the 5th century St. Augustine. And then it says, prior to Augustine, suicide per se was not condemned by pagans, Jews, or Christians. On the contrary, in certain circumstances, it was even advocated as the right and noble thing to do. So that's right to your point. Yeah, I mean, martyrdom was literally... Taking up your cross is literally something that was a commandment that was attributed to Jesus. Like martyrdom was literally um, something that was like desired by the early church, Um, which, you know, I mean, you can uh, say that that's not really a suicide, but you're committing yourself to your own death. I mean, I think that this passage, like in if handled the correct way, handled in a way that's sensitive is is actually like really encouraging to people that are struggling because it gives you a figure to identify with that also struggled who's considered like this i mean i think part of the problem is we read the bible and create these saintly figures out of people that are just people um you know the apostle paul was just a guy he he told people that they should castrate themselves because they disagreed with him um you know, if they were, if they disagreed about circumcision, they should fully castrate themselves. I mean, this is a guy that's just a human being. Like, he gets angry. He has issues with people. He couldn't get along with any other church leader. I think to make him into this sort of like sanctified figure, like, alienates you from him completely. Whereas, like, yeah. And, and, and like, his writings are complex too. So let's look at the complex person and the complex writings with a little bit of. Um, actual curiosity, instead of making it into this sort of dull, um, dead thing where, well, Paul couldn't be talking about that because Paul is saintly Paul and Paul wouldn't be struggling. Well, why not? He basically says, like, to the Corinthians, if you follow the teachers that oppose me, then you're not in the body of Christ anymore. I mean, Paul was a very vindictive person at certain times. Um, There's no reason to believe that he's this, like, perfect saint that is above regular human emotion. No, and he he himself says that he was the chief of the sinners. Um, so I, but or even to assume that this is a sin. I mean, I don't think that this passage is. I mean, I think part of the encouragement is that Paul is talking about this. Like, look, guys, I'm really struggling. This yeah. stinks. Even if I kill myself, I'm gonna be with Christ. Like, it's well, a good thing. I don't think that there's an immediate distinction that this is somehow sinful. You're absolutely right, but I'm saying, like, even if you do make that distinction, um, Paul is a sinner. There's a tendency yeah, yeah. for Christians to put Paul up almost on the level of Christ. Um, we're we're talking about doing an episode called "Did Paul Invent Christianity?" This is a um, kind of a theme that a lot of people talk about because, like, Paul's influence on Christianity was so great. I mean, he wrote the majority of the New Testament. Most of the theology and the philosophy that modern Christians have does not come from Jesus; it comes from the Apostle Paul. So we're gonna we're gonna talk a lot about that. But the um, but when you talked about um, like the genre of literature, I think that's really interesting. In um, uh, a paper published by Cambridge University Press by Paul Holloway, he talks about this and how the Philippians passage is actually a type of literature that using the word, I'm going to see if I don't butcher this word, dubitatio, 
And it says, Dubitatio is a complex figure of speech in which a speaker explicitly weighs her or his options in the course of making a difficult decision. Dubitatio was typically used to display a protagonist's character as revealed in her or his decision-making. In Philippians 1, 22 through 26, that's what we just read, Paul uses Dubitatio to draw the readers into his deliberations whether to commit suicide in prison. In so doing, he not only reveals to them his own character, but their character as well, inasmuch as it is inordinate grief over his imprisonment that will ultimately determine Paul's decision. Dubitatio occurs already in Homer, but it was made famous in Greek tragedy, where it largely defined the genre. The tragic Dubitatio was parodied in subsequent comedy and by the Roman period was beginning to appear in other genres, including political oratory, various poetic genres, history, and epistle. Paul's apt use of dubitatio in Philippians 1, 22-26 shows an obvious familiarity with the figure. By attending to Paul's use of dubitatio in Philippians 1, 22-26, we can arrive at a fresh and convincing interpretation of this challenging crux interpretum. So, yeah, uh, like I, me and you weren't the first people to to see this and find it interesting, and I and I think uh, your impassioned words, Ben, um, were really right on, and I I hope that you know when when people listen to this show, this is not just for atheists and agnostics and skeptics. Uh, we hope Christians listen to it too, and and we hope that. Um, maybe if we're not changing your mind about everything we're saying, maybe you can, uh, draw a nugget here and there of something that might change your mind or view it in a, in a different light. Yeah. I found it kind of interesting. Even when I, I basically posted the, to, in response on Reddit, the a similar thing to what I just said, uh, you know, this is a chance to be encouraged by Paul. And I think ultimately, you know, we don't think Paul killed himself. Paul, you may not agree with his reasons not to, um, but Paul decides that he would rather finish his mission and that uh, he doesn't take his own life, assumably. So I think that that can be an encouraging message, too, that even when you're in the depths of despair, that um, you can come out of it uh, if you, uh, find the, the right motivation and, uh, if you, uh, seek the right treatment. And then the encouraging part was the person on Reddit said like, oh, I found this encouraging. Um, which is ironic since I'm coming to these scriptures, hopefully from a more of a historical neutral perspective. Um, but I think there's still things there that you can find even from that perspective that you can see are encouraging or, um, can be edifying if you understand them the correct way. If you're not afraid of the uh, implications of the uh, clear reading, then you're able to actually read what the text is saying and then figure out what implications it has afterwards. This is False Witness, the segment where we read three Bible verses, two real and one false, planted mischievously by our producer, Diana. It's our job to read the verses and determine which ones are actual Bible verses and which one is the false witness. Um, I will start um, reading them. So, verse one. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, 
there they run again. Okay. Number two. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. Okay. And number three. I have torn myself out of many bitter places, tall and green-rooted in the mid-noon. You were the shadow in me. Well, right off the top of my head, nothing is really standing out. What about you, Ben? So my initial thought is that two is from Song of Solomon. But that's kind of just a guess. I know that there's a lot of like vegetation imagery and this sounds like it could it could very easily fit into that that could all be a trick though um this is interesting yeah with number one now that i read it again i feel like i've heard this in context of um maybe like christian apologists or maybe critiques against like the scientific accuracy of the Bible because the claim is made that all streams flow into the sea. And I think I've heard that debated like, no, that's not technically true. So I just, I feel like somewhere in the vault of my brain, like I've heard this before. So I'm going to say number one is real for that reason. Yeah, I also feel like I've heard that somewhere, but I don't remember where. Um it all, and then three seems so strange. I mean, I shouldn't use that as a as a determining factor, just because it seems weird to choose it. Um, but it's torn myself. But it almost se- sounded like I just don't know what the context could be. Tall and green rooted in the mid noon. Yeah. Okay. So. So I, I'm saying number one to me seems like I've heard it before in the context of like a science discussion of the Bible. Yeah. Number two, I agree with you that that seems to me like it's something from Song of Solomon. If not, it would, I think, be Psalms or Proverbs. And number three to me also seems like just something abnormal about it. I am going to say the false witness is number three. Yeah, I... Th- hmm. I think number three sounds weird, but I'm reluctant. For some reason, I think that it might be real. Okay. I'm going to choose number one. Okay. So let's you're just go. You're probably right. I know you're right. I will, I will open up the wax-sealed envelope. I'll just go in order here. Um, all streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. Comes from Ecclesiastes 1 7. Oh, man. Um, and that's like your favorite book. I know. Not my favorite part of my favorite book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The next one you water its furrows abundantly, you settle its ridges, you soften it with showers, you bless its growth. This is the Psalm, Psalm 65 10. Oh, wow. So I was kind of right about that. And then I was right that to this, uh, okay. I have torn myself out of the many bitter places, tall and green rooted in the mid noon. You were the shadow in me. This comes from to the Sagaro cactus tree in the desert rain by James Wright. Oh, interesting. 
So I must have read that uh, poem at one point in time, or novel, yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah, that's uh, that was a good one from Diana. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Not even a, not even a scripture passage. I got it yeah, by job, um, just by process of elimination on that one. Yeah, uh, yeah. I knew that I had seen number one somewhere, but I was just hoping it was like Deepak Chopra or something. All right, well, we'll wrap up with a quote. Um, Today, the quote is from Hayden Washington and John Cook. Genuine skepticism in science is one of the ways that science progresses, examining assumptions and conclusions. Denial is something very different. It is a refusal to believe something, no matter what the evidence. Those in denial demonstrate a willful ignorance and invoke logical fallacies to buttress their unshakable beliefs. That's great, Ben. I know for the quote, we're supposed to just kind of end with the quote, but like, there's there's so much I want to say about this because uh, the word skeptic is, I think, misused. Um, we mean skeptic in a way that says, um, you know, do not believe something without evidence. Ex- critically examine the arguments that are being made. What skepticism is not is someone that just automatically doubts everything um, or denies what the evidence shows. So when someone claims to be a climate skeptic, for instance, they're not actually being skeptics. They're being climate denialist. If they were a true climate skeptic, they would accept the science of climate change. Yeah, skepticism just means you're not going to make your conclusion until you see where the evidence takes you. Once you see the evidence, then you draw the conclusion based on that evidence. It's like the exact opposite of being a denialist where you start with the conclusion that you don't believe something and then disregard anything that's uh, inconvenient. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lopker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com.